All right, welcome back to episode two of the Golden Path podcast. You're here with Max and Aaron, and we're going to move on to the second phase of understanding, the second phase of introspection with the Gene Keys. It's the path of challenge. It's relating to the evolution sphere in the holographic profile. And since Max has so kindly volunteered to be our our great illuminator, we're going to use his profile as a guide to decipher and deconstruct. Um, episode one was really a joy to work through together, and uh, episode two promises to be just as exciting. So, a little bit of background about the Gene Keys. Max, maybe you could just give us a brief synopsis of what the evolution sphere is, and, and as you've started to dive into the study here, what your initial reflections are. Um, and for you, it's the 64th Gene Key, mm-hmm. the last Gene Key. The, you know, the last two, the 63 and 64, are polarities. They're opposites of each other. Uh, they oppose each other, so to speak. 63, just to recall, was all about truth with a capital T and the path of inquiry. Um, and the 64th gene key is all about illumination and it's the path of imagination. So maybe you could give us a quick breakdown of what the challenge means in your profile and in some of your initial observations about how that relates to your life. Yeah, so the 64th gene key for me is the evolution, which is, uh, you know, directly kind of compatible and, and dancing with my life's work. Um, I see it very much as the life's work is kind of the starting point, maybe the more familiar of the two. And the evolution is uh, the place to which you evolve or the, or the duality of what you're, you're moving between. Right. Um, and so very much the challenge in life is how do you take your life's work and let it evolve into your life's evolution? I love it. I love it. And maybe speak to the essence of these frequencies, right? Because truth or the kind of logical pro- approach, the science-based approach is is connected to Gene Key 63. But this Gene Key, Gene Key 64, is wildly different. It is. It's the path of imagination um, and it's the shadow state of confusion. Mm-hmm. And maybe you could start by just reflecting on how that sits in the context of your life. What does creativity mean to you? Is that a challenge to you in your life? What does the state of confusion mean? Um, let's make this personal, right right from the get-go. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the, the duality between 63 and 64 is kind of the duality between the, the right brain and, and the left brain, and, and the left brain being the more logical, you know, 63 kind of, uh, order and understanding and structure and 64 is the right brain and its artistic expression and freedom and creativity and the path of no path um, and so I very much kind of feel that of within my life of um, we kind of talked last time of how when I was younger I felt very aligned to the logic and order of the world mm. but as I've aged I've been uh, drawn towards the creative side and the arts and um it definitely doesn't come as naturally to me. It's definitely a space where I'm more filled with confusion, mm. but it is also something I'm more passionate about. Right, right. Well, even this is the realm of passion in some respects. Absolutely. This is the realm of light and illumination. Um, one of the areas that Richard Rudd touched upon that I found really interesting was this idea of withdrawal, that you're pulling back into that space of emptiness or chaos Mm -hmm. and you're allowing it to be empty or chaotic just as it is yes and if you can feel that emptiness or that chaos or that pain and allow it to be just as it is and you and you hold the space for that chaos you hold the space for that emptiness that's when the creative breakthroughs happens that's when the satori comes that's when the quantum leaps of insight come and that's a really interesting concept. Um, I do want to relate it to um, a, a Kabbalistic concept called mm-hmm. simsum, or okay. withdrawal, the, the divine withdrawal. It's something that is spoken about in the, the Kabbalistic literature. And it's such a cool idea, right? It's like you have to create the space or, or the, the container of darkness in order for the light to emerge. Mm. 
And for so many people, it's so difficult to do that because you have to sit in the pain. Right. Um, so these, these issues are all, um, you know, part of each other, so to speak. They, they interrelate to each other. They communicate with each other. They, they give birth to each other. Um, and what's your experience with that? concept that creative withdrawal can you think of any moments in your life is this perhaps one of those moments where you've had to sit in the emptiness sit in the confusion and the chaos well i think we're for me at least i'm, I'm always sitting in the confusion i mean when uh, i began reading about this uh, gene key 64 i was immediately like confusion that's so familiar that's almost comforting um how can you not ever be confused? I mean, in the moments where we claim that we're not confused, I, I think we're mostly just lying to ourselves. Right. Um, we don't really have a grasp on what's going on. Um, it's easy to kind of, you know, imagine or create these illusions that um, you have it all figured out. But th the truth is you don't. I mean, the truth is we're, we're naturally confused. We're born knowing nothing, right? I mean, right. that's got to be extraordinarily confusing. Um, but within that you just kind of sit and be still and, and we've talked about that something I'm, I'm working on right now and, and something I've spent a lot of time doing right. um, and the confusion begins to settle and one thing that was interesting was how you can't really be confused when your mind is still right the confusion comes out of the noise out of the chaos right. within your mind right the layer of the mind is the layer that's trying to understand infinity Therefore, exactly. we'll always be confused. That's right. And when you um, disassociate with that level and you, and you disidentify the exclusivity of only being through your mind mm -hmm. is when you allow the space to occur for a greater dimensional awareness to emerge. Yes. The, the two shadows of 63 and 64, their twin pillars, so to speak, mm -hmm. are doubt and confusion. And oh my gosh, are these not the, the ailments of our age? Totally. Um, of many ages past as well, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, for the young person trying to make their way through the world, I feel like doubt, self-doubt, confusion are kind of part and parcel of everyone's path. Absolutely. Um, how do you think doubt plays into confusion and confusion plays into doubt on a practical level? Hmm. Well, I think uh, confusion is, as I said, I, I sit almost a little more comfortably in that. It feels uh, very universal. Right. Doubt feels more personal. Right. Um, and doubt feels like more of a struggle, like right. more like you're there's something to fight with. Right. Um, confusion is just being lost in the haze. It's like you don't even know which direction to go into. Right. Um, but they complement each other very well, and they're certainly like these primordial states. Right. Well, one thing that's definitely coming up for me is that you cannot force these solutions. Right. You know, there's a key to unlocking the power inside of these shadows, and Richard Rudd, you know, states very simply that the key is time. Mm-hmm. You have to sit with the doubt. You have to sit with the confusion. You have to allow it to be. Right. You know, one of the kind of key archetypal transformational um, embodiments of the Gene Keys is this idea of allowing and then accepting yes. and then embracing in that order, right? When you, when you feel an emotion, when you're struggling with, with something in life, you know, there's this tendency to A, not want to feel it, to do the avoidance. B, there's a tendency to want to try to fix it. Right? Oh, I, I feel bad or my lover feels bad. So I want to I want to try to feel better. I want to try to feel something that that's positive or emotionally uplifting. But every time we try to change these core archetypal shadows, we're actually doing ourselves a disservice. Right? Right? Because that shape, that awareness, that chaos wants to be inside of us and it wants to be inside of us as is. Mm -hmm. It doesn't want to be twisted or turned or reimagined or any of that stuff. It just wants to be. Totally. And um, I think that's a really core driver of the Gene Key system is this allow, accept, embrace. Mm -hmm. 
and you know the great artists of the world draw from this paradigm totally right if you try to force art it doesn't work you have to be with it uncomfortably and you have to let the energy move through you the way it wants to move and then what emerges are these brilliant configurations of color and paint and uh, texture and and all the things that make art so great um, and the same applies to our life right because we are all living embodiments of a creative process and we are all picassos so to speak of our own life right we are the great artist giving form to this right. unique experience well, and, I, and i would add to that we're we're both the artist and the work of art right, right. we are both picasso the painter and picasso the painted the painted yes well in that case i'm probably the blue guitarist who's struggling with that beautiful look of agony on his face strumming his uh guitar almost vertically that's my favorite picasso painting from the blue period very nice i remember in my in my teenage years you know when i was 18 19 years old freshman in college i just definitely went through a period of utter struggle and agony and pain and depression mm -hmm. and i that that picture of the guitarist picasso's guitarist was my backdrop painting on my computer desktop very nice it resonated so deeply and um and i did sit with that pain and i did move through it and it was transformed um you know another thing that came up for me in reading gene key 64 again and revisiting it was you know a, an experience i had in my early 20s probably 23 24 mm -hmm. um, i had a full-blown kundalini experience and when i read gene key 64 Although I know it's not the Jinghi that directly references the Kundalini energy, I absolutely saw the Kundalini experience um, embedded in this Jinghi. And in my own personal experience, when I kind of like went into the space of utter formlessness, right? The word in Sanskrit is nirvikalpa samadhi. Um, I saw, you know, an aura of light, an aurora. Mm. And I remember thinking to myself, oh my gosh, I'm having this great spiritual experience and God is showing me a picture of a bagel. It was, <laughs> it was like a glowing um, circle of light. Yeah, a halo. A halo, an aurora, a Taurus. And uh, the Taurus is explicitly mentioned in Gene Key 64 in the, the Gene Keys book. Um, and so is this idea of illumination, yes. right? This idea of moving into the darkness and from that darkness, there's a creative explosion, almost mimicking the act of creation, if you will. Very much so. Um, and all of this sounds so otherworldly to describe, but this is, an, this is a primitive experience that I, that I lived through. It mm -hmm. wasn't abstract at all. It was everything in the moment. And I, I had, you know, was going through a series of challenges and struggles in my life at the time. I was uh, trying to figure out my place in the world and I was living alone away from my home trying to kind of go through that struggle um, and I was visiting my girlfriend at the time when this experience happened and I actually woke up in the middle of the night twisting and turning in my bed mm. and I felt this energy this kind of like concentrated energy moving up and down my spine with my breath and I was it was it was pleasurable and painful at the same time i was trying to like let it move through my body and turning my body into almost these different shapes and pretzels almost these yogi yogic postures trying to let the energy express itself as it was telling me to to move mm -hmm. and i got out of bed in the middle of the night and went into the bathtub drew a bath got into the bath submerged my whole body underwater such that only my my breath was kind of peeking through to the surface. And when you do that and you're breathing with most of your body underwater, as you breathe, your body very subtly rises and falls because your breath has a different density than, um, than, other, than, than anything else, right? So your buoyancy changes in the water as you breathe. And what a beautiful metaphor, right? Because as you said yesterday, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a fish that discovered water. We are inside the universal water right now, that universal ether, so to speak, that substrate that we can't see. And yet here we are always inside of it. And our breath is constantly moving and changing our buoyancy in the water, 
right? Yes. I think of the great sperm whale whose body is actually a layer of buoyancy that can be changed. The sperm whale, which is the mammal that dives furthest and deepest into the the center of the earth they can go you know further down than than most boats or submarines could ever submerge they change the viscosity the buoyancy of this the spermicidal whatever the i'm going to mess up the word here in a terrible way but that's all right but um it's an amazing thing because the same way that we can control oh i'm flexing my muscles they can change the nature of of their flesh and dive by changing the buoyancy of their body and we do something very similar when we just breathe in and out. And this great transition happened, this great, like this, this exact moment in my life, this inflection point happened as I, A, tried to align myself to the breath of the Kundalini energy. You know, I found myself doing a, a type of breathing that's called breath of fire, mm-hmm. although I didn't know of this breathing or, you know, maybe I'd done it. And unconsciously in a yoga class before, but I was doing it to not hyperventilate in the moment. And that type of breathing is like a staccato breath. It's like a like that. Mm-hmm. And that energy was moving through my body and I was trying to, again, just not lose my breath, hyperventilate. And then, you know, after doing that for probably 10, 20, 30 minutes, I don't know, time was, it was just moving by. Um, I, I, the, the energy changed to long, slow breaths. Mm. So it was like a deep breath in. Deep breath out. And every time I'd breathe in and I'd breathe out again, the breath going out was like, it, it would keep going further than I thought. Right, you think you can breathe out only so much, and it would just go a little bit further each time. And I mention that because this inflection point, this inflection moment I wanted to describe was this perfectly beautiful moment where I breathed out so much, I didn't think I could breathe out anymore, and then all of a sudden there was this like, and I breathed out a little bit more than I thought I could. You know, this was like a 20 second long breath out or maybe 30 second long or maybe a minute. I don't know. But that that extra breath that breathed out and let out something allowed me to then breathe in anew for the first time. And it literally reminded me of the feeling of a baby that comes out of the womb and draws in that first breath, right? It's such a sacred breath, that first breath that the baby takes. And in my life, that's what it was. It was a brand new emergence, a new awakening, a new birth, so to speak. And there was an exact moment where I breathed out and then had this new breath drawn into me. And from that moment forward, there was always this feeling that life has a tangible energetic quality to it. And I access it through my breath. I feel it through the buoyancy of my body moving through the world. And that Kundalini experience which could also be described as a Shekhinah energy, which is what the Jews called the indwelling presence of the divine or the sacred feminine energy. There was always a different texture to my lived experience from that moment forward onwards. Mm. And that creative experience, unlike earlier mystical or enlightenment type experiences or states of consciousness that I'd felt or accessed before, had this beautiful warmth to it, this feminine this feminine side or aspect to it. I even remember like in a moment feeling like a thousand things that I'd heard or had been told before by different women in my life had all of a sudden made sense to me. You know, I'd heard them before, but I hadn't heard them from the inside. And now, and now I could access that space emotionally. And all of this came up for me as I read Gene Key 64, because they describe a very similar alchemical process of withdrawal into the divine um, negation, so to speak. And then from that place, an explosion of creativity. Mm. I mean, one metaphor that I offered to friends and families, I grew in my confidence to be able to share this experience with people was this idea of like taking diamonds and melting them and then drinking like a diamond liquid in your body such that you could feel it moving through your whole body, that life force energy, that kundalini, that shekhinah energy. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And um, wow, what what an experience, and what an experience to revisit. Um, and the Gene Keys gives a gives a, a language to these types of experiences, right? Um, talk me through what comes up for you in Gene Key sixty four as you reflect on what I just shared, yeah. and also your earlier contemplations of the meaning of Gene Key four in your life, right? Yeah. This this place of challenge. Well, first, let me thank you for sharing that just absolutely incredible story. Um, I mean, I feel like I've, in some regards, just had that experience with you. So that was that was pretty special. Um, was that for you like a sudden enlightenment? Because that was something that was referenced in, in Gene Key 64 that I thought was um, interesting. It was a surprise enlightenment. And I say that because my experiences of enlightenment that had happened before in my life, you know, three or four years before, was more like entering into the void. And I felt this great sense of inner peace, right? Like that this angst that I'd carried with me for years, particularly into my teenage years, had had been um, unfolded or almost like the metaphor I always drew up was this idea of, you know, when you're cleaning a blanket and you throw it out like a sheet into the wind and it goes right like that's what my first experience Mm. of the enlightened state was and i really had found this inner peace um and for years i i i was so grateful to move through life with that inner peace because the things that had caused me so much pain and suffering before they kind of dissolved or fell away and i and i had this confidence that i could you know tackle all these new initiatives in life um and I didn't expect this next turning. Sure. It surprised the heck out of me because it was such a creative explosion. It wasn't the experience of peace, although there was a, you know, a moment of peace in the buildup, right? It was really the experience of great volcanic or cathartic energy, mm. an explosion of creativity and color and texture. Um, and I really feel like in some respects, my consciousness entered into space right? Yes. If I could offer a metaphor to you, you know, raise out one hand, one finger. And, and, and let me ask you a question here. Can you feel from the tip of your finger? Yes. Yes. You can feel the tip of your finger can feel, feel the air around it. You're, you're embodied in, in space. All right. Now lift out your other hand and your other finger. Can you feel from the tip of this finger? I can. Yes, of course you can. We all can. All right. Now here's, here's the rub hold out both fingers Mm -hmm. and feel from the tip of both fingers simultaneously and feel the energy that moves between them. Yeah. The arc of energy between your two fingers, even more potent, even more potent. That is our, that is our being, that is our consciousness in space. That's right. That is embodied. That is a different type of awareness. It is a more feminine type of awareness, right? Mm. It's not necessarily an awareness in the mind is so much as an awareness in the body. Um, it's a, it's a somatic awareness and, um, you know, all of our different emotions, all of our different experiences have shape and form in time and in space. Right. Um, you know, I, I almost see these radical neon colors coming up as I, as I think about it's a very electrically charged energy. Yes. Right. I mean, life force energy has, um, names in all these different languages, right? Chi, prana. Shekhina, Kundalini, these are all different forms of conscious awareness mm-hmm. or of that aspect of life force energy. And I think that's something that we really are missing in our culture. Definitely. Right? We live in a very hyper-rationalized and scientific worldview, mm-hmm. but we don't necessarily understand or fully honor the presence of life force energy. And we don't necessarily even have the words or the concepts to hold the meaning of these different types of energy. Right. And in some ways, what the Gene Keys is, is a vocabulary. It's a language of light. And by giving a name, a word or a series of words to describe our experiences, we're helping people actually embody these frequencies Mm -hmm. because language is so important to creation. Um, You know, the, the places in our ecosystem, in our, in our life, that we do have words for energy, it's mostly in the realms of music and food. 
Okay. Right? In the world of music, we can talk about energy mm-hmm. because, hey, man, did you hear that reggae song? Yeah, you know? man. Um, you know, ska is different from punk, is different from uh, an acoustic ballad, is different from Beethoven, is different from hip hop or rap music. And they all kind of move at different levels or, or, or chakras of our body centers. Yep. Um, but we do have a language to describe music. We do. Right? And same with food, right? Like we understand that a cucumber is cool, for example, or that a pepper is hot, right? So we're already creating a... a, a Texture po- and a language to describe it, yeah. Exactly. And the energetic experience is in that realm. That's right. right. Um, all right, so coming back to this idea of illumination and this idea of challenge, how could you pose the challenge in your life, you know, moving forward, your next steps? How is... How is creativity playing a role um, as a challenge in your life? Mm-hmm. Um, how is imagination playing a role as a gift in your life at this, yeah. at this moment? Well, I think it's a lot about making that transition from the more structural, logical way of doing things. I mean, that we see imitated in our world constantly and begin to become more in touch with the, you know, the full texture of life energy, more of that feminine energy. Um, and that's certainly not the place where I begin. And uh, it's a place I'm just beginning to get some familiarity to. Um, this gene key felt a lot more opaque or just a little harder to access than 63 very much. Mm. Made a lot of sense. It felt like it spoke to me. Illumination, I can sort of understand, but I don't. I haven't had that Kundalini experience. I don't, I, there's no clear reference points to be like, okay, that's what I'm vibrating at right. that frequency. So it's a little harder, but, um, imagination seems to very much be the way. I mean, it's kind of how you take the inquiry and the questioning and the beginning to dismantle. And now you have these parts that you've dismantled and now right. you're kind of back in the primordial confused state. And now we're going to rebuild them and we're going to use our imagination to make something that's never existed before. Right. Um, You know, one of the things that Richard Rudd mentions is this difference between yoga or this discipline path. Mm -hmm. Yoga means to yoke, right? To yoke the the mind and the body, the the spirit and matter. Um, That presupposes that there's already a distinction between mind and matter or that they're, that they are separate from each Mm -hmm. other. So the yogic practice is a discipline. You enter into these different postures of form and you hold them through concentrated effort and then you relax into the form. Um, Whereas 64 is more the tantric path. Right. And according to Richard Rudd's terminology, the tantric path is all about surrender Mm -hmm. or submission. So how does surrender or submission come up as a thing in your life how has that been a teacher or a guide well i think it's a tremendous teacher it's something i'm just beginning to kind of really learn to do to let go to be present to you know a lot of that comes from the meditation um no longer just hooking on to whatever you know idea just you know flew through my mind and instead taking a step back and surrendering and just watching those things uh fly through i was thinking about confusion which i've kind of said before is uh pretty familiar to me i feel constantly confused right um and i was thinking about you and your own life and how you're about to become a father and i would imagine that's very confusing how the hell do you do that right and then you think well you actually know how to do it. Like if you're very actively engaged and you're trying to figure it out, it is confusing. When you surrender, when you just be, you realize that, oh, being a father is about love. You know how to exchange love with another being. That's what you're programmed to do. So it's very much just the kind of uh, the letting go, the accepting, the being present that's the surrender when we're trying to make sense of it all when we're trying to use our minds to understand the infinite that's when things get really confusing right right um a few so the idea of tantra right doesn't come from one um one system tantra is found in many different systems um you know, there are tantric schools that come out of Hinduism, for example, and there are tantric schools that come out of Buddhism, for mm-hmm. example. Um, and the tantric schools have a lot more in, 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 um, 
can, a lot of similarities that you don't necessarily find in the other versions of Hinduism or Buddhism, which can be incredibly antagonistic, right? And the tantric schools are about playing with energy, mm. right? Ken Wilber, one of my favorite writers, talks about um, different stages of, of religion or mm. um, evolution of religion, religious traditions. And, and the example is that he gives is Buddhism, right? The first wave of Buddhism was called Theravada Buddhism. Okay. And that was all about people wanting to become arhats or, or model the enlightened behavior of the Buddha. So there's a lot of monks, essentially. It was, a, it was schools of monks yeah. that wanted to become enlightened and, and carry the torch, so to speak, of the Buddha's words and, and the Buddha's path. The second wave of Buddhism that came around the sec, second century is called Mahayana Buddhism. And this kind of followed in the wake of a great philosopher named Nagarjuna. Mm. Nagarjuna was a great understanding of the, of the paradox of language and the paradox of, of logic and basically said that everything's a paradox and everything's, um, you know, every logic meets its, its end, so to speak. And it's about translogical or trans-dimensional thinking that, that resolves the paradox. Um, and he, he mentioned, for example, this idea that nirvana and samsara, samsara is the world of suffering, the turning of the wheel, are not two. So he was probably the first great, in the Buddhist tradition, the first great non-dual mm. philosopher. And what emerged after this kind of great being came into the world and shared his message were these schools of Mahayana Buddhism. And if you have ever heard of the Heart Sutra, okay. the Heart Sutra and a series of literature called the Prajnaparamita, which means the perfection of wisdom. And the longing to become an arhat was replaced by karuna a great compassion and you saw the switch you saw people stop trying to want to emulate the buddha to become enlightened and instead wanted to be here in this world and serve others through care and compassion through karuna right so this idea um, this ideal of the arhat was replaced by the ideal of the bodhisattva and the bodhisattva is the one that promises to not enter into the pearly gates of heaven until all beings you know cease to suffer so it's a it's a it's an embodied energy it's a downward facing energy it's an involutionary energy so to speak it's that feeling of love that moves and trickles through the cells of your body activated um and from that literature and from the mahayana path the middle way right in the in the third wave of buddhism is sometimes it's, it's vajrayana the diamond path it's the tantric schools this is what emerged in tibet you know okay um 600 AD around then it's just this wildly different take on the first two traditions right it's neither merely about ascending to heaven and becoming enlightened like the Buddha mm -hmm. or being embodied and full of compassion like like an angel of compassion um, it's about using any of the elements of energy or matter as fuel towards being both enlightened and compassionate at the same time so the tantric schools are about using um, sometimes and oftentimes forbidden practices like meditating on death or um, drinking or using other types of substances or drugs. Um, it's about, you know, a lot of these things that are considered anathema in traditional religions become the food or the fodder for experiences and different, you know, um, navigating different states of consciousness. So sex all of a sudden, which is often perceived as a bad thing in certain religious traditions, right? Becomes a vehicle to experience the divine, right? So tantra, which means tan means to expand, right? If you can think of your consciousness when you can hold it, you know, just for a second there, it's almost that like when you're learning how to dance, right? You like get into the flow for a second, you're dancing, you're dancing. If you think about it, you lose it. That's right. Right? And Tantra is about holding that energy so that you don't lose it. And the energy itself begins to build up in, um, it, it snowballs. It becomes more and more, it's flowing with greater and greater, um, you know, just, just waves of, of energy. Yeah. Um, so Tantra is about playing with energy. It's about using the limitations of matter, the limitations of our body to transcend our body. Right. Um, and that's the you know the, the third wave of, wave of Buddhism, so to speak, and that's just one tradition. But I think that's reflective of a deeper archetypal pattern. Mm -hmm. And um, 
you know, the tantric school, the, the schools of illumination, so to speak, um, are, are found in these different traditions as well. I mean, Kabbalah and Judaism has a deep history of kind of tantric thinking, you know, playing with the elements, so to speak. So do the ancient Greeks and many other schools. They have these, these tantric tra- traditions. Um, this is the realm of the 64th Jinki. This is the realm of the Aurora. This is the realm of, you know, the great imagination. I think it was uh, um, Einstein who said, you know, imagination is greater than, I forget what he said exactly, but it basically. It's greater than knowledge. Greater than knowledge. Yes. Um, And what, oh my gosh. I mean, you know, the smartest person of the 20th century is saying something to all of us, Right. right? You don't have to be an Einstein. You just have to sit in the uncomfortableness yep. and let that energy move through you and that brilliance will move through you. Right. And let the unknown come through you so that you can create what was previously seen as unknown. Uh, imagination is, is very interesting because I feel like in our society, in our culture, there's this idea of imagination that is something that uh, children have, like an endless pool and resource of imagination. But it's right. like, maybe it's finite because as we draw from it, our pool shrinks and shrinks. And that as we grow older, we actually lose our imagination. Or sometimes it's even frowned upon to have an imagination, you know, as you age, that that's, you know, the realm of children. Right. And yet how twisted and backwards that is. I mean, being able to continue to imagine to continue to be able to create i guess there's a sense that um it's dangerous when adults have imaginations because it can be creative and destructive um so there's probably some pressures to make everybody conform there is a lot in here about the you know the repressive nature of confusion Mm. is imitation Mm. which very much resonates because when you look at the world all around you you're just seeing so many people imitating and when you don't imitate, well, then you're back to being confused because you're not seeing it right. aligned, right? The right. only way that you can not be imitating and not be confused is to be using your imagination to be, you know, creating that new path for yourself. But when you do that in the domain of the 64th gene key, it's, there's no clear way and clear order. The path is the way of the Tantra. It's the, right. you know, as you said, it's like, you know, compressing it and then letting that expand within right. you. right. It's interesting, too, because there's a tendency, I don't know if it's the Western mind or just a human quirk, but when we hear about the shadows, we think they're bad, right? Because confusion right. sounds bad. Imitation sounds bad. I think that's a Western quirk. Like, I don't, I don't know if that's just unique to humans at all. But Well, what's interesting is as you dive deeper into the gene keys, you realize more and more the shadows aren't bad. They're the way. Right. They're the, the way, right? Is the, way. the great artists start by imitating other great artists. Of course. And you, you kind of embody that rhythm, that form, right? If you're learning how to play music, for example, you'll learn other musicians' music. Yeah. And over time, as you get more and more comfortable with the imitation, you start to feel like the imitation is a limitation because your soul is exploding with a new and mm. novel interpretation of how to be this music. Right. Right. And then there's also the element of what was the imitation had been the imagination prior, right? Right. You know, jazz becomes the, oh, that's now the standard domain. But right. it was totally radical when it first came to be even, right. you know, classical music, which seems like the most stayed. Right. When Beethoven and Mozart were, you know, composing their great symphonies, there was nothing more radical right. and not being imitated. Now, if you're going to, you know, that's where you would begin, but you're still starting at the at the fringes. Right. Well, you know, Stravinsky, the great composer, once said, all art is born of limitation. Yes. Right? And I think that's really important because um, when we give ourselves um, a casing or a limitation to work from, it actually inspires us to be more creative because we feel the form pushing around us, squeezing us into our box and our energy, which is limitless, wants to explode through that box, through that limitation. You know, it's, it's the relationship between those two extremes is so fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. It's why I do better under pressure or do better with limitations put in front of me. Mm -hmm. I hate, I hate just nebulousness. That's one of the hardest things for me to deal with. Right. I'd much rather be given a challenge or, um, you know, creative, um, limitation. Yeah. 
creativity uh, out of constraint. Exactly. Exactly. And I do think, you know, as we talked about yoga, right? When you, when you follow the discipline, it creates the limitation. When you follow the imitation, it creates the limitation. And from that discipline and from that imitation emerges the novelty of brilliance, the novelty of, of the life force energy wanting to kind of move almost yeah. like water through pipes. Mm-hmm. I think also when you think of the novelty in creation, it's like, it's going back to, you can't be trying too hard. If you're like, now I'm going to sit and try to think of something new. It's not exactly how it happens. You have to surrender. You have to open up and these creative energies kind of move through you as you kind of, I think beautifully described them, you know, creating that constraint, forcing the energy to expand. But I, I find a lot of, you know, particularly the most original ideas seem to just come through artists. And I know, um, mm-hmm. kind of mentioned to you when I read this yesterday that, you know, I was thinking a lot about Rick Rubin right. because he's like the master of helping artists attune oh, so yeah. that the creative energy can move through them right. and come through them. And he's helping them find their voice. Yes. Right? He's aware and, and almost like a, a, a reflective mirror to these artists of when they're in tune and when they're out of tune with themselves. Mm-hmm. Right, because every voice has a has a perfectly balanced, attuned frequency to it, yes. both literally and metaphorically. Right. And as a songwriter, as a performer, you're trying to find that voice both literally and metaphorically. Yep. Right. And you can sing lots of songs, you could write lots of songs, you could record lots of songs. But sometimes the artist is just not doing their thing. Right. Right. They always have to they have to Well, there's tap. always that that pain or that obstacle that's holding you back from being truly pure. Right. And what's interesting with Rick Rubin as a producer is how eclectic the artists that he works oh, with are. The Red Hot Chili Peppers and Johnny Cash. Pantera are- <laughs> to, you know, uh, Daniel Caesar. Like, right. And um, he, you know, most producers have a sound or a style that they work with and you go to them to kind of, you know, you become sort of a blend between, you know, Michael Jackson's great records are right. a blend between Michael's talent and Quincy Jones's talent. They're, right. they're a real collaboration. But Rick is so, he doesn't want to input anything about the essence of Rick Rubin upon the artist. He wants it to be 100% the purest version of that right. artist. Right. And it's interesting because in this documentary that I'd alluded to, uh, Shangri-La, he speaks about how for him the ultimate uh, goal, the ultimate challenge of producing an artist would be to produce an artist without ever meeting them, seeing them, or speaking to them. Wow. Because in that sense, no part of him is, uh, you know, being imparted on the art or the artist. There are no impurities. There are no fingerprints of Rick Rubin. It is just the artist. So is that a world where um, an artist records something, shows it to him, he listens to it on his own and then provides feedback. It's like the distance learning of of producing. Yeah, or or I seem to think of it maybe more as like as his um as his presence kind of expands and more people become familiar with kind of his teaching and his style that an artist would never interact with Rick Rubin but just observe the way that he works with other artists right. and try to allow that to let their own energy come through. And so the the um, well, one great thing was when he produced LL Cool J's album early right. on, he didn't put um, produced by Rick Rubin. He said reduced by Rick Rubin, which is very much that's, know, that's, stripping, sent, away. that's stripping away, that's right. going for the purity. Um, but I think the ultimate would be just inspired by Rick Rubin. He, like, without ever even touching me, just happened to bring that flame that is now, you know, engulfing and moving through me. Interesting. And he's got such a guru type energy, right? Completely. Now, he, I mean, back in the day, he looked like such a, a bandit. You know, he yeah. is a... Well, he's really he, inspired by wrestling. Right. So he really liked to... I mean, with the Beastie Boys, he liked to be the heel. Right. Yes. And he looked like a heel. Yes. Um, but, you know, in his later later stages of life, he really became... I mean, he looks like a guru now. He's got the long flowing beard. Oh, he is, yeah. Um, his energy and his essence just being there almost like you said is is evoking these this greatness from artists um and there's a naturalness to him Mm -hmm. right he he's he's not forcing things but he's 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 longing and urging people to to show up as greatness yes um i want to just just do one quick turn here and and 
step back into the teachings of the Gene Keys, there's a there's an element we've just learned about but haven't really talked about yet, which is this this notion of the lines. Okay. So the Gene Keys are made up of 64 genetic archetypes, and each of those archetypes has six lines to them. They they correspond to the lines of the I Ching, and each one of those lines is either on or off, you know, yin or yang, broken or unbroken. And each of the hexagrams have six lines. It's two to the sixth power, which is 64. That's what creates that genetic diversity of 64. And because there are six lines and 64 archetypes, there are 384 lines in total. Mm -hmm. And these lines form a corresponding um, data set, right, Uh, that are unique to each energy pattern. My lines in my four outer they're called the prime gifts yeah. are a three and a five and yours are a six and a two. That's right. And in total, there are 12 different energy archetypes that correspond to your level and your incarnation or frequency of energy. And you just learned about this. And I was wondering if you could talk the audience through um, how you've understood it to date and how it's, has it, has it resonated with you? Does this seem like something that's crazy in an outer space or is this, or is this touching upon something that's meaningful to you? Yeah. Well, I just learned this and, and as this conversation today is particularly going, I feel very much like I'm a brand new Spanish speaker speaking with somebody who's completely fluent. You have such an incredible grasp of, uh, this language of, you know, the textures and emotions of our consciousness. And I've been trying to speak this language for maybe two days. So it's very, very new for me. Um, but I think also going through this process with you, um, this is, you know, a full deep immersion course. I've gone, I'm doing my study abroad right now. Um, so that's exciting. Um, but yeah, I've just learned that I, um, have the energy of the teacher is kind of line six. Um, and it's interesting, I think appropriate that we just brought up Rick Rubin, because I think that's very much kind of the teacher of the way it's like how you guide people and show people and empower people. It's not the teacher with the ruler who's ready to, to smack you or the teacher who's going to write all the answers up on the chalkboard. It's the teacher who's going to just, you know, take the thing out of your way that's distracting you or just put the pen in your hand when the moment comes for you to be inspired. And ultimately it was interesting to learn, um, that the path of the six line is, uh, the first 30 years are you're the student. I mean, in that regard, I'm kind of in the, the graduate program of my studies right now. I very much still feel like I'm embodying the student. I have a a growth mindset and a sense that I'm always learning. I'm reading a tremendous amount and consuming more knowledge than I'm expanding. Um, but it says that at 30, you transition and you kind of become more of the teacher and you reach this state of stability. So it's kind of uh, prescient that here we are talking about this as I'm right at that inflection point. Haven't just beginning to make that turn. I don't exactly know what this next chapter is going to look like, but the door is starting to creak open a little bit. Right. Um, And then at age 50, you actually transition into being the role model, which is kind of the teacher who doesn't need to say anything or do anything. Right. I mean, Rick Rubin, I wouldn't be surprised if he was a 6'2 or had a 6 in him because um, he's now a role model. Right. And he just lives and bees and that kind of shows and leads the way. Right. Um, and I definitely aspire to that. I love the idea of just inspiring people and teaching people by doing nothing. Right. I mean, is there anything more powerful or no, profound it's the ultimate, than that? It's the it's ultimate the, way, It's right? the ultimate Yoda. Totally. Just to walk through the six lines again, for the people that are new to the gene keys, um, you know, they correspond to the lines of the hexagram, which you draw from the bottom up and you interpret from the bottom up. There are six lines. um, The metaphor that's often given is like building a house. The first line is the foundation or the basement. And then you build up from there to each floor level of the house. And Mm -hmm. the sixth line is the roof. Yeah. Um, The first line is the creator. And that's all about study and introspection and the foundations of creativity. And, um, it, you know, it's, it's a wholly absorbed line. Hmm. It's not somebody out looking at other things. They're just introspecting and fully looking at the mechanics from the inside out. Um, the second line is the dancer, which is all about, um, movement and passion. It's, it's what comes easy or natural is right. 
Um, the third line is the changer, which is all about energy and experience. That's my archetypal energy. Mm-hmm. And um, that's someone who thrives in change and diversity and new experiences, adventurous. Um, you know, the book of changes, which is I've dedicated a study to is all about the the science of change, so to speak. That's a very third line thing to be interested in. Um, the fourth line is the server. That's about networks or service, kindness, um, and, and really being uh, the person that's the glue, you know, connecting all these different people and, re- and, and relationships together in a network. Um, the fifth line is called the fixer. It's almost like the manager, you know, the person that wears a suit, the boss, the CEO. Um, you bring practical solutions and you become a leader, so to speak, um, both in, internally and, and in the world. And then the sixth line is the most mystical. It's the most mysterious. It's the teacher. It builds upon all five of the lines that come before and it, and, and it offers this extra essence, this je ne sais quoi. And that's the line that you embody. Mm-hmm. Um, remember, the outer four prime gifts are about embodiment. And this part of the program is called the activation sequence because you're, you're activating these four outer rungs, so to speak. Right? The, um, the life's work and the evolution are opposite of each other. Mm-hmm. Right? It's almost like if you are born at high noon and that's your life's work. Yeah. The evolution is midnight. Right. It's diametrically opposed. And high noon wants to become midnight. And midnight wants to become high noon. That's right. And um, out of the 384 different permutations or storylines of the Gene Keys, you're 64.6, which is the ultimate. It's the last. It's the final destination, so to speak, of the Gene Keys storyline, um, which is a really interesting place to be. I definitely don't know any other 64.4s in my life. Sure. Um, and one thing I will counsel you on only because I've read this in other places. I don't know that I know this through experience yet, but the 64 requires the most patience, Mm. right? You are the definition of a late bloomer. Yes. Right? I was such a energetically an advanced child in academic studies. You know, a lot of people constantly told me, oh, you know, you're so advanced. You're so advanced for your age kind of stuff. Um, and I remember in my early twenties, I had a girlfriend and she always described herself as a late bloomer. She had this incredibly young, vibrant energy and this, um, you know, playfulness about her. Mm -hmm. And she would joke with me that, that, you know, that's just how it worked for her. She was a late bloomer. And I thought there was a lot of, I was so fascinated by her pride of that. That's who she was. And she knew that about herself. I think that's really important because a lot of people blame themselves about where they are in their life mm. or, or they get frustrated because they're not seeing enough progress around them. And I want to invite you to always remember that there's something else that's going to emerge in your timeline mm. um, and to, to be patient and to um, be grateful for where you are, even if it's not exactly where you want to be. I think there's a, there's a unique lesson in there for you. Yeah, that, that feels right. I mean, I think that with that comes some struggle. It's maybe not always, uh, I, I think, you know, being behind and, and having to be patient can create some uncomfortableness that, uh, you know, the, especially in our society that is so, you know, progress and charge ahead that the idea of being patient and right. being slow. Right. Um, but at the same time that that's maybe where some of my challenges are, it also comes very naturally to me. Right. I have a, a deep sense of patience. I know when to just be patient and listen to my intuition on that. Right. And another thing is I often notice if I'm walking in a big group, I'm going to end up behind everybody. Interesting. Yeah. And not in like a bad way, not in a lazy or a slow way, just in a taking my sweet fucking time way right. and stopping to smell the flowers and right. being, you know, if you're actually being present, what's the rush? So the, uh, so Richard Rudd offers six metaphors for how these energy archetype works, right? The first line, which is the creator archetype. You are here to change the way people breathe because hmm. it all begins and ends with breath, right? It's a stabilizing energy. Very much so. Right. Because we move in, we move out, 
and we're stabilized in between those two polarities, between those two extremes. The second line, you are here to change the way people move. Mm. It is a gliding energy. Right. That's why the dancer is offered as an image or archetype. You're yes. gliding through life. The third line, you are here to change the way people feel about themselves. It's a leaping energy because we're moving from one experience to another. Mm -hmm. And the third line has to be okay with this constancy of change. A lot of people, they, they either experience anxiety or they don't feel good about themselves in their life as things change. Right. The third line is here to say, oh my gosh, all there is is change. Right. Better, better start getting used to it. Yeah, and Richard Rudd said, um, you know, we were just listening to one of his audios and he was talking about how every moment is either a chance to expand or contract. Right. And every moment, of course, is the change. Right. Things are always changing. Right. And so, yeah, that can be the, the, the constant opportunity, right. especially when things aren't going well. Right. There's always going to be an opportunity to change, to expand, to move right. beyond. But it also is the source of so much challenge and struggle for people totally because they fight and they resist against the change and then instead of letting it expand it actually contracts for them the metaphor that's coming up the image that's coming up for me to describe this activity of leaping is when you go fishing or if mm -hmm. you go down to the river's edge and you're trying to cross from one portion of a stream to the other. Sure, we've done and, that. And you have to walk along the rocks with the water kind of moving between them and then you have to leap from one rock to the next. That's the energy of the third line. Um, that's my archetypal energy. Um, and I like that metaphor in particular because I love fishing and I love the activity of leaping from rock to rock. Um, the fourth line is about you are here to change the way people feel about others. It's a flooding energy, right? Mm -hmm. I can't help but think of Honey Flood in this instance because that is her name and it's a flood of energy. You are here to change the way people feel about others, mm. right? We are here to serve each other. We are here to love each other. Love emerges as a flood of emotion. You become full with love and you transmit that to other people, right? That's what the fourth line is here to do. They're here to love other people. Um, the fifth line, you are here to change the way people behave. And that's about radiating, right? Radiating. Wow. That's what the sun does, right? The sun radiates out. I mean, again, this is another metaphor for love, but instead of being a flood of love, it's the radiation of love. You know, the sun is, is an archetype for like this big thing in the sky that's overseeing everything. And the fifth line definitely has that element to it. Mm. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's the way that a great star or a CEO of a company, right? They, they, if they're good, they radiate out the purpose of the company. Half the time they don't even do anything. They right. don't even do that much, right? Yeah, but those are the best leaders. Right, they have to embody the direction and the change of, they have to pull everybody in the dimensionality of, of where the group right. needs to, to go. the strongest gravitational force. Yeah. Right. Um, and the sixth line, which is your line. You would never guess the metaphor that's offered. The sixth line, you are here to change the way people think. And the metaphor that's offered the image is the imaging of trickling like a drop that trickles down, you mm. know, if the, if it rains and, and the roof is full of water and then after it stops raining, the, the drops just start dripping down. It's a trickle. That's what the sixth line is, right? Cause it's beyond the energy of the sun. You see, you know, the, there's a mystical school from, oh my gosh, where is it? It's from that place between India and Pakistan the Kashmir region. It's called okay. Kashmir Shaivism. It's a form of Hinduism, but it's all about the vibration of consciousness. And in these schools, they describe this like sweet nectar that's inside of your brain. And as you go into mystical stillness, you can actually allow this sweet nectar to trickle into mm. your, into your being. And it's like ecstasy that trickles into your being. It's a really beautiful metaphor to leave you with today. We're approaching the witching hour of this session. It's been an unbelievable session. We just got right into it. 
I think next episode, we're going to bring in a third party. Mm-hmm. And we're going to dive more into your story. Yeah. It's a great time to do it because we've kind of created some context here to contemplate with, some limitations to think about. Mm-hmm. And now we're going to get into that deeper essence of you. We're going to yeah. learn more about your story, learn more about your pain. Mm-hmm. Um, any thoughts you'd like to leave us with? I'm trying to think of something profound that can trickle away, but I'm just uh, kind of contemplating upon uh, the trickling and the idea of like the great teacher who taught you something 10, 15 years ago. And like, you think you've been able, you think you've been able to wring that for all that it's worth. And you go back and like, there's still more that you can squeeze Mm. out of it. Um, and it just kind of continues and continues to uh, give you wisdom. I have, I have one uh, teacher in particular who's coming to mind, but we'll uh, save him for another day. Perfect. Well, wonderful. Thank you. And until next time.